When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Business Weekly, a new segment from Intelligence Squared exploring the biggest issues in the world of business. In each episode, we'll speak to entrepreneurs, authors and public intellectuals about the future of capitalism and the trends changing the world of business. In this week's podcast, we're featuring an episode of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. Host Chris Hurst speaks to Lakshman Narasimhan, CEO of Reckit, the global consumer goods company behind household brands such as Dettol, Jurex and Eurofen. They discuss modern leadership in a world of disruption and change, and we hope you enjoy it. Now let's go to the episode. Hi Chris. Hi Farah. So tell us about this week's guest. This week, we're talking to Laxman Narasimhan, who is the CEO of one of the world's biggest companies, Reckit, a member of the FTSE 100, a company that owns many, many brands who most of you will own in your homes as we speak. Well, in the theme of business leaders, this week, our quickfire round is on doing business. Zoom or on the phone? On the phone. Uh, I, I, th- I feel like uh, a year ago, the novelty of uh, let's do a Zoom call well, lasted for about a week. And then crazily, you found yourself organizing Zoom meetings for conversations that normally you'd have just rung up and had a five minute chat. So um, on the phone every time. Also on the phone, you can do the conversation lying down. which sometimes is a business necessity. I absolutely agree. Uh, Email or WhatsApp? WhatsApp. I think it forces you to be quicker, more spontaneous, more concise. And I think WhatsApp's a bit more forgiving of punctuation and spelling, which really helps me because I'm bad at both. Open plan or cubicles in offices? Do you think anybody would ever answer cubicles? (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure. I suppose maybe in a, maybe in a, in, a, in a COVID world, suddenly cubicles became became the thing, perhaps. But I'm getting, I'm imagining an optimistic, sunny future where there's no more COVID. In which case, open plan all the way. And what about networking events or one to one meetings? I absolutely. I, I, I was going to say I absolutely hate networking events. I think I, I would go further than that and say I think I've got a phobia. I genuinely think like some people have spiders. Spiderphobia, arachnophobia, and I have networking eventophobia. I, I, they terrify me, uh, I, and I, I therefore I don't enjoy them, and therefore get nothing out of them. So one-on-one meetings all the time. Business breakfast or lunch? I'm a big fan of a breakfast. I it's my favourite meal of the day, so I will always choose uh, a business breakfast over a business lunch if I can. You know, if I have a business breakfast, I have to have a pre-breakfast at home before the business breakfast. I have to eat something before I leave the house. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I do kind of get that, but I just eat a double breakfast when I get there, basically. <laughs> 
Hello and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Chris Hurst, author of No Bullshit Leadership, and in my day job, I'm global CEO of Havas Creative Group. Leadership is difficult, but not complicated. In this podcast series, I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, or politics. My guest today is Lakshman Narasimhan, CEO of the global consumer goods giant Reckitt. Reckitt is the company behind some of the world's biggest health, hygiene, and nutrition brands. As they sell more than 20 million products every day, it's very likely that you are already one of their customers. Their brands are household names around the world, from Dettol, Finish and Vanish, to Nurofen, Durex, and Strepsils. I'm also delighted to say, and in full disclosure, that Reckitt is a global client of Havas. Before running Reckitt, Lakshman held a number of senior positions in PepsiCo, including Global Chief Commercial Officer, and was previously a director at McKinsey. It's lovely to see you, Lakshman, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. Delighted to have you here. So we're going to start, as we always do, just to sort of uh, get the, the juices flowing uh, with a quick fire round. So in three words, describe your leadership style. Four words, if that's okay. So strategic, open and empowering and decisive. If you could delete any word from the business jargon dictionary, what would it be? Leverage. <laughs> and which leader do you most admire? Nelson Mandela. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? It's the people. And what is the best decision you've ever made? Chris, I'm at home, so I have to start with the word marriage. <laughs> okay. Well, I was going to ask you then as a follow-up, what's the worst decision? So I, I don't know whether... <laughs> so we're not going there for sure, but marriage definitely was the best decision. But if I were to think about the best business or personal or professional decision, I would say it's uh, despite the wonderful time I had there, it was leaving McKinsey to join PepsiCo. Okay. Well, well, we'll hopefully get to that in due course and talk a bit about your career up to this point. But before we do that, then, let's get into the main body of it and go right back to the start of your career. Can you tell us a bit about growing up and how your interest in business began? Sure. I'm the only surviving child of three. My parents raised me in Pune, India, which is a town. It's about 150 kilometers from Bombay or Mumbai, as they now refer to it. It was a challenging time early on because my brother was eight and I was six when he passed away living in a home with a sick child. But then after that, being the only child, my sister had passed away before I was born. You end up with a, a family that's obviously extremely protective of you, but at the same time, you know, dealing with a lot of sadness. And my father threw himself into work and uh, he was a wonderful dad, a great family man in, in so many ways, but really put himself into work, I think in a lot of ways to get over some of the sadness. And he rose to become CEO of a company. My mother's a school teacher. She's a primary school teacher. And uh, she had never worked before my brother passed away. So she actually went back to school to learn to be a teacher. And then two years after my brother passed away, uh, she went back to school. And then three years later, she began teaching. And she taught for almost 35 years. So there were always kids in our house growing up. So even though I was the only child, there were always kids in the house because she had people come over for help and, mm -hmm. you know, extra this and extra that. And so... There were always kids. And so it was actually wonderful to make friends with many of my mother's students. My father, when I was uh, about 17, he quit being CEO to start a business. 
And he started this business ostensibly, as he said, for me to take over. It was a little hard to explain to him that the business was pretty boring and I had no interest in it at all. But he started it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, two years after that, he felt really sick. Uh, he had, a, you know, he had a heart attack and a stroke and all of it. So I remember when I was in college, I didn't actually leave home. I stayed at home while going through college because, you know, I just couldn't leave a sick father and a mother and, you know, the only child and all of that. And I worked nights from the age of 19 to actually get him ready for work like the next day. So I got a real sense of business from that perspective because I had no idea about business, but clearly he was involved with business and it was um, something I, I knew that I had to learn about. It was great, although there were some fairly horrendous uh, moments, like when I got a call from a union leader you know, in his factory that he had set up and the union leader was threatening me with physical assault if they didn't agree to the terms. And I was like 20 years old. And I remember telling my father, you know, I really like my legs and I didn't want somebody to break them. And he was like, you're being a coward and a wimp and whatever. Give me the phone. I'll talk to the guy. And he, of course, did. So it was actually quite, uh, you know, it was it was very from the street, if I could really say that. Yeah. Uh, and which is really how I got acquainted with the business day to day. If you had told me when I was 20 or 21 that I was one day going to do what I was doing, I'd laugh at you. I'd say that's no yeah. way that's possible. At 21, my father accepted a role for me at a startup, a manufacturing startup. One of his friends, our neighbors actually had started it. They had sort of taken a liking to me. I was a young fellow, 21. They were going to give me the keys to the technology of the business. They sent me to America for a couple of months. My father thought that was the right thing. I went to South Carolina and trained how to manufacture and assemble these machines. It's a business that made machine tools. And I came back to Pune, India and set up the factory to, you know, make these machine tools. And so, unfortunately, after that, my father passed away when I was 22. And I decided then that I had to do something for my life because every decision I made until then was for the family, was, um, you know, stay there, take care of them, all of it. And at 22 is when I decided that I was actually going to make, you know, something out of me, that the business was interesting, yeah. that he had set up. I was in a startup in another company, but I thought the world was clearly something I needed to explore and that is how I got down to saying, I'm going to apply to business school and see where it takes me. And right. that's how I ended up applying to business school. So that was the, the whole journey. I think, wow. you know, starting from a basically very family type of setting, going through quite a bit early on as a child and then as a young man, uh, but then deciding at 22 to actually, you know, go to business school or something. So that's when you went to Wharton. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's when I actually applied. I applied to five schools. Yeah. I studied for my GMAT in the trains in India. You know, going in eastern India, you know, traveling to small places where there were factories, where there were people buying these machine tools that we were selling, working in very rural or small towns in India, studying for the exams, taking it in a very noisy place in Bombay, you know, in between all my different travels, sure. writing my business school applications while I was in planes or trains or cars in India, coming back on the weekend, getting it typed up because in those days I just didn't even own a PC. And applying to all these famous fancy schools because, uh, you know, I had a book, the 10 best business schools in the world. Sure. And, I, and I made a list and, um, you know, I had about, you know, five or six schools, six schools that I was going to apply to. I ended up applying to five. And there was a sixth one, which was Harvard. And uh, my mother had read this 10 best business schools. She only read the first chapter, which was Harvard. And it said, oh, it's very competitive and it's very this and it's very that. And I didn't have time to go to the post office to post all my forms. So I gave the form to my mother 
And I was making $100 a month, approximately. Mm. So the application fees were $75 a month. It's like a lot of money. And yeah. so she was like, why are you applying to this Harvard? Because, you know, it's the only school I've read. It seems very competitive. And, you know, I don't think they're going to take you anyway. But why are you, why are you doing this? I said, look, I just want to try. I want to apply to Harvard. I'd apply to the other schools and so on and so forth, Wharton and, you know, some of the others. She posted all the forms except for Harvard. So the applications went out and, you know, I was waiting to hear. I'm still traveling all over India. And then I remember the Gulf War started in 1991 and the postal service got all screwed up. So I never heard from any of these schools. And right. I was thinking, my God, what the hell happened? But, you know, all the post was delayed. So I finally heard from a couple, you know, and uh, I'd gotten to at least a couple and I hadn't heard from Wharton. I was wondering what the hell, what, you know, what, what had happened. And I remember calling Wharton in those days and I said, what's happened to my application form? And they said, well, you know, we can't tell you what the verdict is on the form, but we can fax it to you. So I'm sitting in this small town in India next to a friend's fax machine waiting for this piece of paper to come. It came, of course, reverse. So I had to wait for the whole thing to come out and I'm looking at it saying, oh, I've got admitted. So, you know, that's really how I ended up getting into business school. I quit my job two months before going and I would take the train to Bombay thrice a week because uh, I was looking for money. I only had $7,700. I sold, you know, which I got from selling my car and the savings I had. My father had left me three paintings. I took one of these paintings to Bombay and sold it. And, you know, I was applying for scholarships, but I had no idea whether I would get any of them. But I had to go off to business school in May because I'd applied for a dual degree with German as a language as well. So going to the U.S. was quite something. I ended up uh, borrowing money and showing that I had enough money to get a visa to go to the U.S. and then returning the money the next day. You know, I ended up getting a visa and I went off to the States with, as I said, $7,700 two suitcases and a pressure cooker because my mother thought being Asian, I needed to eat. So this was pre 9-11, of course. And, you know, here I am. Yeah. Wow. That's an amazing story. And so, so you went to Wharton in the end, right? I know there's a, there's, there's a business school. So there's always this debate about business schools as whether on balance is worth it. And, you know, in full disclosure, I went to one too. And certainly for me, it genuinely did change my life. And that's a, that's a, that's a whole separate story. But what was the most important thing that you felt you got from your time there? You know, when I landed at Wharton, my flatmates had gone to Stanford and had gone to, you know, I think a, a fancy school in France. And I had gone to a you know, fairly no-name school, very old, very good school, but not in the same league as many of these people. I mean, I thought, as you would say, I was a hiring mistake that they had basically selected me. And, you know, I didn't even know whether I belonged to a place like that. I think the two years and what I did academically, and I got two degrees there, by the way, it's in the master's and, uh, you know, got the MBA, but I also got an MA in international Mm -hmm. studies in German. And I spent time in Germany and, you know, worked in London and all of it. But what it did for me is it actually gave me a belief that, I actually, you know, belonged. Yeah. I could actually yeah. hold my own against these people who'd come from very fancy places, had yeah. great, you know, prep school backgrounds and, you know, had gone to some of the most uh, important private school, boarding schools in the U.S. And here I was, you know, coming from a, from a town in India with basically nothing and being a migrant and actually in some ways, in some weekends early on, you know, depending on my friends to get me through the weekend. They really helped out. Uh, And they're great friends of mine even today. But getting through all that, 
I got a real belief that I belonged. That's a great answer. So, so you you have this uh, transformational experience. I mean, that's my words, not yours, but that's what it that's what it feels like you're saying uh, at Wharton. And then, then you go back to New Delhi. Is that right? To uh, as part of McKinsey? No, actually, I joined McKinsey in Cleveland, Ohio. Ah, okay. It's a great experience, great office, great firm. Uh, and with McKinsey, I went around the world. Uh, so right. I worked in Cleveland. My second year was in New Delhi. My third year was in Toronto. Fourth year was in Cleveland. The fifth year, I spent part of it in Tokyo. And then I came back to Cleveland. I was elected a partner. And my wife finished studying at Case Western. And when I was elected partner, I moved to Silicon Valley, where I was for seven years. And after seven years in Silicon Valley, working up and down the West Coast and also the East Coast and in Europe, I ended up relocating to Delhi. And I was in Delhi for about, uh, you know, I would say uh, coming on four and a half, five years before I then left McKinsey. And, and I guess uh, having listened to your the time before Wharton, you had a very, let's say, I think your words, a very kind of, uh, I don't know, tough possibly experience of leadership as quite a young man. And then you went to, I guess, the quite kind of a quite rarefied atmosphere and then you go into McKinsey. How did real world, let me say that, leadership differ from the version that you're taught at, uh, at university? You know, I have to tell you that the things you are taught at university, and there are interesting frameworks, interesting ideas, interesting concepts. And it's only when you actually do things, run things, be part of things, that you actually begin to form your own model of leadership. In a lot of ways, it's a mosaic of different things you see, different experiences you have, that in fact help you figure out how you motivate how you lead, how you guide, how you decide, and also how you learn. One of the big things about leadership is it's never static. You're always learning. So how you learn as a leader also is a very important thing that you pick up. And it's picked up in practice, how you reflect, how you thought about what you did well, what didn't do well, and how the loop sort of reinforces. These are things that have become quite important. And I think that in school, you kind of get a conceptual framing of these. But the school is purely just that. It's a yeah. conceptual framing. It's a way for you to build confidence in yourself. It's interesting you picked that example. And in the in the previous series of the podcast, we we talked to Clive Woodward, who, you know, the, the sports coach who uh coached the England rugby team when they won the World Cup. That's exactly what he talks about. He he describes himself as, you know, you talk about what he thinks his greatest strength as a leader is, and he talks about his ability to learn. He said, you know what, I, I just I'm always in learning mode. And I think it's a great, a great piece of advice. Actually, you know, one thing, Chris, is you're always in learning mode, but also the corollary to this, you're also always in unlearning mode. Because what happens is that's really how you end up growing. I think about my time in McKinsey and then going off to work uh, in what you might define as the real world. Um, I think what you realize, what I realized was that early on, in the first couple of years particularly, I had to unlearn many things that I took to be the way things were because I'd learned it that way. And so it's both those things. It's both learning as well as unlearning. Do you have any examples of things you unlearned? You know, for example, using facts to make a decision. If I was at a place like McKinsey, I would clearly think about it very robustly and I'd go at it in a sort of 360 way you know, here's left, here's right, here's whatever, and therefore here's the choice, right? When you're at work and you're in a company, 
often you don't have the luxury to be able to do that. So do you do divide things into, you know, what are high stakes, large, mm-hmm. irreversible choices versus things that you can make a decision and then you can reverse? Maybe relatively easily, sometimes at some cost. And so having the same decision-making model for whether a decision is consequential or not, right, is, is sort of, it, it is not the way to work. And normally if you're a place like McKinsey, you get called in for the hard you know, consequential, mostly irreversible decisions. So you end up building a muscle that gets you there. But when you're working in real life, you're confronted with, you know, I'd say 90 out of the 100 decisions you make are frankly inconsequential and they can be reversed, but you got to make them quickly. And so the bar on facts, the, the reliance on judgment, the reliance on pattern recognition as yeah. a key muscle becomes quite important. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv so you you have this Fantastic learning experience and, I suppose, period of personal development at McKinsey, but you said at the start of the uh, conversation, the best decision you ever took was leaving McKinsey and joining PepsiCo. What point in your career is this? How long had you been at McKinsey at that point? I've been at McKinsey 19 years. Right. It's quite rare for someone at 19 years to really leave. 
And it took me a while to leave. I mean, I'd been thinking of leaving for six years, but I ended up leaving it, you know, uh, when I did, uh, 19 years in. And the reason I say it was the best decision was because I felt I had been really schooled in every single way I could have, you know, um, and particularly my time in India when I was uh, helping to run the Delhi office, you really understood the leadership that business uh, leaders play that cuts across this sort of private sector, public sector, social sector. And you realize that you're, you know, you have a bigger role than just leading business. You've got to lead all three if you want to have true impact. And my grounding in Delhi really taught me that. And it gave me the ability to say, you know what, I think I'm now ready. And one of my clients asked me this question, you know, which is a very <laughs> tough question to answer. He said, so how many people do you, do you, quote unquote, touch or influence in a day? I said, well, you know, maybe 50 or 60. How about you? And he said, well, you know, if you look at this factory and look at the people who live in this community around it, and you look at the supplies and so on, I'm touching, you know, 350 to 400,000 people a day. And I said, wow, that's an incredible number. And he said, well, the reality is that if you really want to be significant, not just successful, you need to have an impact on a large number of people. And just so you know, I don't think you can do it where you are, but I believe that you can do it if you leave. Yeah. And he planted this idea in my head and I'm thinking to myself, why did he ever say that to me? And, you know, I kept thinking about it for a while, almost like a year. <laughs> At which point in time, of course, I got a call from Indra Nui, uh, who had been, you know, trying to recruit me for six years. And, you know, it was just an opportune time when she called. And I just said, you know what? The role that PepsiCo is offering is a very interesting role. It is, in fact, influencing a larger number of people than I have. It's perhaps the right time to take that advice and leave mm -hmm. McKinsey because I felt I was ready to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's how I left McKinsey to join PepsiCo. So how long were you at PepsiCo? So this, this time period was how long? I was at uh, PepsiCo for a total of seven years, seven, one okay. years. So quite a long, so reason, again, another reasonably long period of time. How would you characterize what you learned that was different at PepsiCo versus McKinsey? Well, firstly, you know, I became the CFO of PepsiCo America's Foods, which is about a, you know, $26 billion business. It has uh, businesses like Quaker, North America, Frito-Lay, North America, Latin American business, big decisions on capital allocation, performance improvement, performance management, as well as people development, particularly the function that I was leading, which was the finance function, of which there were close to 5,000 people. I'd never really run anything more than 50 or 100. I'd also never been in finance. So it was quite a bet to take me and put me into that job. They clearly needed somebody, they were thinking, who might be more of a strategic CFO. And so they put me in. But, you know, you get into this job and, you know, 30 days in, one of your biggest problems is Brazilian VAT. And you're like trying to decide, my goodness, I don't know nothing about Brazilian VAT. And you got to dig in, dive in and spend your time getting schooled in it, learning it and actually becoming pretty good at it and actually restructuring what we did in order to ensure that we had the right tax set up in Brazil. Now, it's clearly not something I'd ever done. All right. But mm -hmm. it was clearly something I had to learn and do. So functionally, I learned a lot. I actually went on weekends on Saturdays to a program called the Chartered Treasury Analysts Program. And I was learning how to be a treasurer. You know, what is it you do with 
you know, foreign exchange and cash management and all this other stuff. It was actually very interesting stuff that I learned. Now, I don't necessarily, you know, uh, broadly proclaim it, but it was great learning for me. So I learned a lot functionally. Mm-hmm. The other thing I learned was I learned a lot about, uh, you know, leading people and influencing people, uh, mm-hmm. not in a kind of outsider in sense, but in kind of an insider sense, because now you were accountable for things that you did, yeah. but you had to get your peers to decide that they were going to do it too. And uh, getting engaged with the growth of Frida Lay or with a performance improvement in Latin America or what we do with Quaker and all that was actually quite material and quite important for us. So you learn also influencing from the inside. And the third thing you learn is you also learn how to work on large corporate efforts where you're partnering with a range of people on things that are materially important to the company. And I got pulled into a few corporate efforts, including the corporate strategy function. Uh, not that I ran it, but I was a coach to the, to the leader who ran it. And through that, set up a big strategy academy, teaching people how to think about strategy. I ran that program for four years, You know, trained 400 PepsiCo people through that. We put an online version of it all the way through. And I learned about the history of the company and the mistakes it made. So I think it really gets down to, you know, I learned functionally what to do. I learned from the standpoint of people how to lead, you know, lead people and influence peers. And then the other part is getting engaged on corporate and big efforts and ensuring I, I, I made an impact there. So that was my life for mm. the first couple of years in the company. And, and through your career, and, and I want to come and bring us right up to date in a second, but, but through your career, have you had other standout people, other leaders or just other people who you've had as mentors or, you know, explicitly or implicitly who you've kind of gone back to time and again for advice or who you've learned particularly from? Oh, there's several. I mean, I have a whole group of people. And by the way, I do the same with, you know, with younger people. There's a whole bunch of them that I mentor. You know, I'll give you a few examples. Brian Cornell, who is the chairman and CEO of Target, was my first boss at PepsiCo. And he is one that I, you know, seek out actively. He happens to be a customer now, but as a mentor, he's clearly one that uh, I look up to enormously. Indra Nui and has had a material impact on, uh, you know, both selecting me to come into the organization, but even beyond as a mentor. Ian Davis who was the chairman of Rolls-Royce and, you know, BP and uh, on the board of BP and J&J is one that has been a mentor of mine ever since, you know, he was at McKinsey when he ran McKinsey, or just stepped down from being running McKinsey. And so there are people like that, that I actually go to and who are uh, folks that, uh, you know, frankly are incredibly helpful to me. And uh, they give me frank advice. They help me rephrase things, um, help me set, you know, you know, set a vision of what I could become. You know, it's very important that sometimes a mentor sort of changes your perspective on what you could be. When Brian Cornell told me one year into me being CFO that he thought I could run a company, I didn't believe him. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, I was like, really? He said, yeah, absolutely. It took me a little while to get used to the idea. But he told me first. Mm-hmm. And he said, I think that might be an ambition you should set for yourself. And it's not one that I really started off with, honestly. You know, I thought, well, I'll get into the senior, the executive team and whatever have you. And yeah, but he helped me do that. So mentoring is a very big deal. And I'm also fortunate in some ways to have had some amazing talent work with me. 
and who are now doing wonderfully well in various parts of the world. And even today, I make it a point to ensure that uh, should they need advice or should they need someone who is unbiased, you know, and they want an opinion, they call me. It's a great segue because he was, he was obviously right. Uh, and you became CEO of Reckitt in September 2019, which uh, was, with hindsight at least, uh, an extraordinary time to become CEO of the company. What, what's, what's the past? How long is that? Nearly, nearly two years, I suppose. Just over a year and a half. What's it been like? Well, it's been, and I think you know this because you watch us closely, mm. it's been quite the journey. Uh, I think the first six months, I was just trying to get a handle on the company, like what it was, what was happening, how it was doing, what skills and capabilities it had, what were the prospects, what the future should be, in order to frame a possible strategy for the company, which we announced end of February 2020. There were some real near-term things that were going on. There was a question as to whether the company should be split or not. There were questions about, you know, did the company have the chassis on which to grow these wonderful brands? Mm -hmm. Uh, Did the company have the people in its leadership that would actually take it to the next level? All these questions. And the first six months for me were intense. There were a lot of things happening with near-term performance, while at the same time, you're trying to match a future story. And I think we agreed on what we thought was, at first, the purpose of why we existed. It's very important to clarify that. Because once we clarified that, everything else fell in place. And we said we exist to protect, heal, and nurture in the relentless pursuit of a cleaner and healthier world. And once we did that, that then led, of course, to what we thought our compass of behaviors were, what our portfolio would look like, what our strategy would be, and how we would drive shareholder value, or which growth was a big element. So mapping that story, taking the board along with me on that journey, till about the middle of January at a board meeting in Florida, where we sort of agreed that was the way forward. And that was about January 16th. And I remember getting a call January 17th from China, which told me about this pneumonia type of an illness that was was spreading. And we had been asked if we could keep open our disinfectant factories over the course of the Chinese New Holiday. That was the first time I heard about it. Some of which were in Wuhan, right? In fact, the largest Dettol factory in China is actually in Wuhan. No, I would say it's about maybe uh, 200 kilometers from about where the epicenter of everything was. But we had to keep the factory open over the course of the Spring Festival. We had to ensure that our workers didn't leave. The government was very helpful in you know, making all that happen as well. But it was pretty intense. And the minute we saw things open up in the sense of cases in Thailand and South Korea and Japan and at the WHO on January 23rd declaring that it was a pandemic, you know, we had to really respond and move very quickly. So, yes. It was. It started from, I got to get a handle of the company and what's really going on and define a vision. And in very little while, it really got very relevant very quickly in this pandemic. I definitely want to come back and talk a little bit about le- leading during the pandemic and you know, the, the significant changes we've, we've all experienced in that. But just quickly before I get to that, you said in the past that you felt that Reckitt had lost its edge. What did you mean by that? You know, this is a very high-performing company. It's got a very big performance edge. 
it's got a very strong executional muscle and a lot of agility to move quickly when, when appropriate, when needed. But I think we were losing many competitive battles. I think our skills weren't contemporary for the future. We had many executional mistakes that would be made because of it. And I think we had a bench of people, very good people. But as you look ahead and look to see how the competitive environment was changing, there was a question as to whether we needed to attract more talent to the company and also advance some great internal talent that we have since done. So that's what I meant by edge. Let's talk about leadership in the in the pandemic. There's a huge amount of, there's been, and there still is a huge amount of talk, I think globally about how work has changed. You know, we, we don't need to expand on that, the amount of time you, you're, not, you're not in the office at the moment. I happen to be today, but, you know, I'm, I wouldn't have been if we were talking yesterday. How have you found leading and particularly a global business uh, during a period where suddenly nobody's in work or like, you have people in factory, but many people, let's say, are not in work, people at home and all the other pressures that comes with that. Have you had to learn new things, new skills during that 12-month period? All the time. I think you've got to recognize that you know seven out of my 10 leaders are new. I want to say four of them have not been into a facility or an office of record since they joined. We've got to find a way, of course, to make that happen, but they haven't. Many of them are running global businesses, but haven't been able to visit markets. So you've got the reality of building a top team with distance. I mean, my CIO, I don't know how tall he is. <laughs> He's a great guy, by the way. But, you know, obviously we work a lot together remotely. But, you know, it'd be nice to know how tall he really was. Anyway, just moving on to that. How do you build a team, you know, with people working from a distance? The second part is how do you actually shape a culture? from the distance. <clears throat> yeah. And in a lot of ways, purpose, the fight, the compass was massively important. And I think the pandemic and that really amplified how deep it got. So that was actually quite positive in some ways, in the sense that we made the best of what we could with that. The third element of this is strategy and choices. Now that gets very confused very quickly with the pandemic because you can communicate in many, many times with the people are making very tactical choices about what's available, not available, is supply there, not there, etc. People are making choices based on what's really available. And it's only now people can step back and say, okay, this was a strategy. These are the earnings model. How are we going to make this happen? You know, they can, by the way, with the hindsight of time, go back and say, you know, or with the benefit of time, go back and look at it and say, these are the choices we're going to make. And the last part of this, you know, if you get this concept of building a people culture, where you put people first, and where diversity, equity, and inclusion are very, very important to us. If I just take the example of inclusion, and you're doing all these meetings remotely, right? how do you ensure that you don't exclude somebody? How do you ensure you connect with these people who are at a distance, many of whom don't know you as a person? You know, So I spent a lot of yeah. time trying to connect with individuals around the world. In all these 15-minute chats I have with them, it's all programmed, it's all set up, it's all heavily organized, and my time is managed very carefully but I do put the effort in to connect with a large number of people. <clears throat> because, you know, I'm a pattern recognizer. And what Zoom and COVID has done to me, it has actually challenged my ability to recognize patterns. What do you mean by a pattern recognizer? I go to a market and I'll see something and I say, gee, that sounds a bit like that. Or right. I go see a factory and say, you know, this doesn't look right because I saw this over there and that was different. Mm. Well, let's just try and probe why, you know, you're, you're connecting dots. When you're remote, 
like you lose the ability to be able to flex in and out. And actually, because you're really looking at what's presented to you and you've got all these small post-it stamps, you can't really quite tell body language. And so you have to actually develop a completely new muscle as to how you quote unquote recognize patterns and how you therefore then make choices because it actually helps you make choices. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to um, just pick up on something you, you went past quite quickly there, but I, but I think it's quite an important point. I know it's very close to your heart, which is purpose. Do you want to just talk a bit about the role purpose or pu- purpose-driven brands or purpose-driven business? Uh, you think plays for Reckitt, but also beyond Reckitt in terms of the role that should play within business more widely? I think this isn't just about you know making money and then doing something with the money you make, it really is foundationally gotten down to how we make our money. And we can't ignore the fact that we are a commercial operation with responsibilities to our shareholders. But I believe there is a way that you can do that and do good. And so the purpose of the company clarifies why we exist, as I've mentioned before. Brands, too, have a reason to exist. You know, there are so many fractures in today's society that brands have a real role in some ways patching those fractures. But in so doing, there are business opportunities for those brands. And if you take even a brand like Durex, which has a massive purpose around why it exists, the fact that it's dealing with one of the biggest issues that people have in the world, and yet at the same time, it provides happiness and you make money while doing that, is in fact a very interesting combination of things that you can Mm -hmm. bring together. Uh, The same thing with a brand like Lysol or a brand like Dettol. These are brands that actually have a real physical purpose and an emotional purpose. And in so doing, you can make money. That's what I mean. I think, you know, all this woke stuff is something, you know, I'm sort of super pragmatic about it, very middle class about it, given where I come from. But I think if you're able to translate it to that, then everything else around it actually becomes very, you know, clear. I have two questions that I'm going to try and do quickly, but they're both, I suspect, quite big questions. So the first is, we talked about leading through the pandemic. Do you have a view on whether there will be permanent changes in terms of how we work and therefore how we lead once we've come through the pandemic? The answer is yes. We are a lot more accommodating of things working remotely than I think we were, you know, together. There are customers that I have met largely through Zoom or Teams. And it's actually great because they're in Turkey or they're in Mexico or Brazil or wherever. And I can actually go to them and it actually makes me more responsive because I can meet them more often. And, you know, if there's an issue, I'm on Teams with them right away. So I actually meet more of them than than I did before. At the same time, I'm going to the other extreme, We can't forget where we came from. If I look at collaboration for creativity, for innovation, you know, clearly, you know, you folks are the masters of this. But if I look at our world and how we innovate and bring products together, we have to collaborate. You know, we have to, in some ways, come together to coach. And and learn. And act and learn, exactly. So as we come together, the, the place does have a big meaning. And I think the role of the place has gone up even more in some ways in our eyes Because even if we end up going to the office for fewer days than we did, while we are there will hopefully bring much more meaning. I can't see a world where we don't go to the office. I think one of the biggest things that technology has to do is find a way to keep up 
with how we work in a hybrid environment. So you don't exclude people. The camera misses, you know, a gesture, you know, which is really in some ways limiting. I mean, working in a two-dimensional yeah. world in a three-dimensional, four-dimensional type of interaction, yeah. right, in, in person. So how do you get multidimensionality to it is actually going to be the real challenge. Mm-hmm. And I think until yeah. that happens, we will see even more of this pressure to come together to ensure we connect, we collaborate, you know, we convene, we connect, we coach. Because our younger people are missing it. They're missing, mm-hmm. you know, apprenticing from some of our people who are slightly older and see the mistakes they make and learn from it and say, I'd never want to do that. It's what I did growing up. Yeah. It's hard to yeah. learn like this. Yeah, I, I agree entirely with that. So so my final question, and uh, this is everybody who listens favorite question, but I suspect isn't the favorite question of the people that I, I talk to. What, what, what role has failure played in your career to this point? Massive. Massive. I think uh, I've learned a lot from failure. I've learned a lot about myself through failure. I've learned a lot through both, by the way, professional failure, but also personal setbacks, you know, be it tough issues, you know, or growing up as a child, uh, having to deal with some of the challenges at home. But, you know, what you realize, by the way, with failure is that you can try something and I you know, lean forward and really put your, put your heart into it. And sometimes there are things outside your control. And I think you want to be mature enough to know that not everything you do is, you know, is a deterministic success. Because there are things around you that are quite stochastic that frankly will happen to you. You have to be mature enough and wise enough to understand that, you know what, you gave it your best shot. You tried everything that you knew within your control to make a real difference. You were honest about it. You were purposeful and you went to bed at night saying, I know I did the right thing and the outcome may be different and that's okay. And as long as you're able to speak to yourself with that level of conviction, success or failure are in some ways irrelevant. It's interesting. I I listened to John Cleese talk about failure. And obviously, it's a sort of an occupational hazard, I guess, as a comedian. People do or they don't laugh. And he said, well, failure in itself, people sort of talk about failure being necessary. And he said, well, it's only necessary and helpful as long as you learn from it. He said, if you keep doing the same things and keep failing and getting it wrong, then it's not a good thing at all. The question is, can you learn from it? And I think that's just a nice way to think about it, I think. It is. So, Lakshman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, It's been a fantastic conversation and we've really enjoyed having you. So thanks. Chris, thank you very much and all the best to you. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, follow, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think and your review will help others find the show. I'm Chris Hurst and this is the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. Executive producer is Farah Jassat. 